0: We will not go into exactly how we will respond, but of course, uh, this will uh, fundamentally change the nature of the conflict. It will, uh, it will uh, uh, mean that a very important line has been crossed.
1: Well, that's NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg today answering the question, or I guess not answering the question, what would NATO do if Russia used a nuclear weapon, launched a nuclear attack? Yes, it would obviously mean a significant line has been, very, has been crossed would be a very serious thing, but there would have to be consequences. To what extent does Vladimir Putin fear those consequences? How serious is he about the use of nuclear weapons to try to shore up his position in Ukraine, a situation that is starting to slip out of his fingers? Putin is facing disaster in Ukraine and embarrassment at home, which is encouraging, but I suppose it is also dangerous, given Putin's nature. How best to understand the Russian dictator and what he's up to here and how he would respond and might respond uh, depending on the circumstances. Well, to help us understand Putin's nature and and the situation we face at the moment, uh, very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, uh, someone who has written uh, more than 30 books and scholarly articles on Russian politics and Russian history, uh, including most recently the book Orders to Kill the Putin Regime and Political Murder, Amy Knight joins us on the line here this afternoon. Amy, great to have you with us. Welcome to the program. Nice to be here. Uh, As we try to make sense of uh, what Putin's up to here, I think, you know, we can understand the big picture. Things are not going well in in Ukraine. He's he's desperate to save face here, facing uh, perhaps political trouble at home. But what else do we need to understand about the moment we face here?
2: Well, you were mentioning uh, just now the possibility of some sort of nuclear uh, use of a strategic nuclear weapon in Ukraine. And um, not only Putin, but some some, uh, others in the Kremlin have alluded to that possibility. And, of course, it's very alarming. Uh, I think the important thing to remember is, yes, Mr. Putin has been backed into a corner. There's no doubt about it. it. This special operation that he started in February... Um, and, and, of course, refused to call it an invasion or a war, has been a complete failure. And the Russian military has um, performed abysmally. So here we are, and now he's, um, he's retaliated by these um, missile strikes that have done yeah. quite a bit of damage and killed people, civilians in Ukraine. Again, that's a, that's a sign of desperateness. So I guess we have to understand, you know, um, how desperate is, is he going to become? I think one important thing to remember about a strategic uh, nuclear strike, uh, which would not mean we're not talking about a massive nuclear weapon, but nonetheless, um, the damage would be horrendous. And I think uh, and, you know, I do not know uh, I'm not privy to what goes on within the Kremlin and I don't know uh, exactly what all their military commanders are discussing, but uh, most people think that Mr. Putin wouldn't make a decision about uh, using a nuclear, a strategic nuclear weapon on his own. In other words, uh, uh, he would have to have others concur. And so I think that the likelihood that they would make uh, this decision is very low. First of all, we don't know which way the wind is going to be blowing. And if, if uh, the wind were, were blowing eastward, it would do a lot of damage to the Russian population, the nuclear fallout. So that's one consideration. And then, of course, the reaction of NATO countries. Right. So they'd be inviting just a, a, a massive escalation of the conflict. So I, I think that Mr. Putin is getting desperate. But. I don't think we're talking about the use of strategic nuclear weapons.
1: Do you believe um, despite his bluster that, that he genuinely fears NATO? That he
2: genuinely fears NATO? Yeah. Of course he does. Yeah. I mean, he's feared NATO for a long time. But of course we have to uh, we have to ask ourselves his perception and uh, Mr. Putin's perception and his own fears are not necessarily a reflection of the reality and I think that they um, uh, definitely the war in Ukraine that Russia has been carrying out is uh, first and foremost a war also against NATO and uh, President Putin has never felt comfortable with what happened after the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991 He does not like the fact that countries that were formerly under the Soviet domain are now members of NATO. And remember that that Russia is not a democratic country. They don't have democratic elections. Now they don't even have a free press. So the biggest fear for Putin and, and his allies is that democracy will spill over into Russia. And, you know, that that they will that Russian people will begin to ask for more rather than less democracy. So I think it's not really so much a feeling that NATO would ever march into the Russian country and um, and take it over, even though they talk about it. It's more what what NATO and the NATO countries stand for.
1: In terms of Putin's own vulnerability, because failure in in Ukraine would seemingly just take us back to a status quo, maybe even a a pre-2014 status quo. But what does failure mean to Putin and his grip on power?
2: Uh, Failure means that at some point he would have to acknowledge uh, that that um, the Russian military had failed and. I, I think that um, failure would, of course, mean that Zelensky and the Ukrainian government would refuse to agree to any kind of a peace that would allow Russia to um, maintain its occupation of the Donbass and Crimea. And I think that, um, that, that Russia, I mean, they might be forced actually to pull out. And, of course, this would be um, a terrible failure for Mr. Putin.
1: What are the chances that he, he gets pushed out? I mean, obviously, the people around him uh, support him. They, they're there due to him. They're, there's no real opposition to, to Vladimir Putin. I mean, Alexei Navalny's is in, in prison. Um, but that doesn't mean that he's, he's secure in his position. Do you, do you see a scenario here where it could lead to Putin being pushed out?
0: I do see a
2: scenario. I I think that um, you're right that that his close allies. Um, well, they control. We call them the Siloviki, the the men of, of fort, the men of power. Um, Putin's close allies control the FSB, which is the successor to the KGB, and also the National Guard, which is used to suppress um, dissent within the country when there are um, protests on the street and so forth. So uh, Putin does sort of have a a, a guard behind him. That said, uh, I have heard from from more than one source that the Russian military is actually not very happy with with Mr. Putin. There has been a lot of reshuffling. Uh, a new commander has been uh, not, uh, appointed to head the Ukrainian operation. Uh, I think that. Uh, at At levels possibly beneath this, there is there is real disquiet in the military because when you when you think about it, President Putin ordered the Russian military to carry out an operation that they really couldn't succeed at.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And so I think it's always possible. there's, of course, going to be a lot of blame, and, and particularly if Russia is forced to make concessions to Ukraine. I think that it's possible that um, elements of the military could insist on, on, on Mr. Putin leaving. Uh, and what would happen after that is very difficult to say. But uh, most of the people at the very top, if, if Mr. Putin is forced to leave office, they will go with him because they bear uh, blame for this operation as well.
1: It's been interesting to see what's been happening in Russia over the last few weeks as well. You know, potential conscripts looking to try to flee the country, Russians taking to the streets, knowing how dangerous, how, how risky that is. You know, even dissenting voices or voices of pessimism showing up on, on state television. How, how real is all of this? Is, is this building up to, to something or is this still a situation that, that Putin can keep a lid on?
2: Well, I mentioned that you know he has uh, control of the National Guard, or his close ally, Mr. Zolotov, is in charge of the mm-hmm. National Guard. I I think that you're right. There is a lot of discontent uh, among the Russian population, particularly among uh, the, the better educated, mobile political elite. And as you m- mentioned, a lot of the people have left the country. I don't think that necessarily translates into uh, the kind of massive uh, street protests that we saw, for example, in 2011, 2012 in Russia. Um, the protests we've seen so far have been much smaller. Now that's partly because they're imprisoning people. Um, you know, They're really clamping down on any expressions of dissent. So it's, it's difficult to know, you know, what what the real feeling is um, uh, among among the general population. But they don't have a you know, you're right. Navalny's in prison. They don't really have a leader right now. Uh, I think if they're if we're going to see an, an immediate um, power struggle or or if Putin is going to be um, removed, I think it's more likely it's going to come from within uh, a certain, like I mentioned, the military or other bodies uh, uh, within the Kremlin rather than from the streets. Uh, it, it, it will take a while. But eventually, of course, I think, yes, I think people uh, will, will become increasingly discontented, particularly if uh, Mr. Putin decides that there has to be a broader conscription uh, that would create a lot of opposition. If, if he feels that the force of, of the extra 300,000 uh, servicemen that he's conscripted, that may not be enough to make any progress on the, on the battlefield in Ukraine. If he were to have to resort to a broader conscription, I'm sure that would translate into a lot of protest in, in within Russia.
1: That's the thing. I mean, we don't know where this is all going, but it just feels like something has changed. Like there's no going back here. There's there's been maybe arguably some permanent damage here, uh, you know, to to the era around Vladimir Putin, and, you know, his invincibility. Right. I mean, he's he's suffered. And whatever comes of all of this, there, there's going to be a lot of this stain that that sticks to him, isn't there?
2: Well, I, I agree. I think I, 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 I don't want to sound um, over dramatic and I don't like to make predictions. But I would say the likelihood of Vladimir Putin remaining in power until the end of his term, which would be March of 2024, is very unlikely. I think he will be forced to leave office, um, and I would say he has months at the most. But, yeah. but of course, you know, predictions are, are predictions, and uh, it, it's possible that uh, that it is possible that the, Rus- their, the Russian military will somehow uh, perform better on, uh, and regain so- on, on, the, on the battlefield and, and regain some of the territory that they've lost in September. Um, and it's just hard to say right now.
1: Well, we'll see where it all goes from here. We'll leave it there for now. Amy, appreciate the insight. Thank you so much. Make some time for us here this afternoon. You're welcome. All the best. That's uh, Amy Knight, uh, as mentioned, the author of uh, several books and scholarly articles on Russian politics, Russian history, including her most recent orders to kill the Putin regime and political murders to sort of understand the nature uh, of the individual who's, who's driving so much of this. And it was his decision to to invade Ukraine. It's his decision right now uh, to decide what to do. Uncovering the truth is an important goal. The public has a right to know what has happened. But inquiries are also forward-looking. They seek not only to understand what has occurred in the past, but also to learn from those experiences and to make recommendations for the future. That's Commissioner Paul Rouleau talking about this public inquiry which began today into the government's invocation of the Emergencies Act to better understand what happened, what led to that decision, the announcement on February 14th, but to also learn from that. And how we might approach a similar situation should it arise in the future. So what is at stake here? What are the important questions we need to better understand? You know, what, what do Canadians need to know and should Canadians care? About all of this. Joining us uh, for more, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Laura Berger, uh, staff lawyer and spokesperson with the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, CCLA.org. Laura, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. What is at stake here? What what do we need to learn from this process here?
3: mind that the Emergencies Act was created as a piece of legislation in the late 80s, it has never been invoked. This is the first time in Canadian history. So I think it's really important that Canadians take a look at the context, why the Emergencies Act was invoked, at the orders that were promulgated under the Act. Um, and really get answers about whether it was necessary or not, whether the legal and constitutional threshold for declaring a national state of emergency was truly met.
1: Well, and and the law is clear on that, right? I mean, the government uh, announced a public order emergency. The Emergencies Act spells out the threshold for what constitutes Mm -hmm. a public order emergency. So that, that would seem to be then a pretty central question here, whether this situation met that threshold.
3: Absolutely. And I think a key question that we have is whether the existing legal tools that the government had at its disposal would have been enough. Would it have been enough? What other options was the government considering? Um, could the government have Resolved the situation using ordinary police powers, uh, ordinary peacetime, non-emergency time powers, um, and simply different strategies, different deployment of resources. And um, another question we have is wh- whether and why it was necessary to declare a state of emergency across the entire country. Because keep in mind that those emergency orders were not geographically limited to Ottawa or to border crossings. They applied coast to coast to coast right across the country to every single canadian um restricting our rights to gather and to participate in protest uh, so that's a key question for us as well what evidence was there um, that that was necessary and could there have been a more tailored narrow order um, that would have served a similar purpose
1: how extraordinary are the powers contained in the act? This is uh, obviously, you know, th- there's a high bar set here for a reason. This public mm-hmm. inquiry is happening because of that high bar. But talk about, you know, why we need to be careful about lowering the bar too much and allowing governments to, to make use of mm-hmm. these powers.
3: So essentially what the Emergencies Act allows the prime minister and cabinet to do is to ask first, ask, act first and seek permission second. Normally... Uh, if the government wants to do something, first it has to be debated and scrutinized in Parliament, and democratically elected MPs get an opportunity to look at it before it comes into effect. Emergency legislation puts that on its head. The idea that in an emergency situation where you time is of the essence, the government needs to be able to ask first, act first seek permission later. Um, And in a democracy, that's not usually how things work. Um, So that, you know, for those of us who are constitutional law nerds um, and those of us who, you know, really care about our democratic structures, that's really exceptional that the prime minister and cabinet would have extraordinary power and it's only after the fact once the damage is done that they have to go to parliament and that there are these types of oversight mechanisms to see whether their decisions were justified.
1: Now this was a a divisive time and these were divisive protests. There were Canadians Mm -hmm. who were maybe you know sympathetic or broadly sympathetic to some or all of the uh, you know the points being raised by these protests. There were a lot of Canadians, though, who had some serious objections, and there were those, obviously, in Ottawa that were directly impacted by all of this. I mean, I don't know if it's possible to completely disentangle one's feelings about the protests from the issues at hand here. But but how important is it that we sort of put some of the politics aside and and you know drill down on some important principles here?
3: For us, it's absolutely essential. Um, We, as an organization at the CCLA, are clear that the situation in Ottawa was incredibly difficult, uh, and it was incredibly difficult for many people who lived through that experience. That's not at all what we're denying. Um, But if any of us think about issues that we care about, issues that would make you or me go out and protest in the streets, um, it could be everything from climate change to abortion rights Um, to the safety of of communities we care about. Think about those issues that would make you go out and take to the streets to protest. How should the government deal with those situations if the protests are disruptive? Um, That is what is at stake, right? How, as a society, we deal with that level of uh, disruption and what rights we have to express our opinions and engage in protest. So whether or not you were supportive of the trucker convoy or some of the messaging, um, the questions around what government can do um, and who they have to explain themselves to afterwards, those are questions that we can all care about.
1: How optimistic are you that we'll we'll have a better understanding of all of this uh, at the end of this process? You know, uh, as you heard from
3: Commissioner Hulot, um, there are thousands of documents and dozens of proposed witnesses. Um, There's going to be a lot of information presented. It's going to be dense. Um, Our lawyers who are participating in the inquiry have their work cut out for them. Um, But that's the sort of the unsexy work of democracy (laughs) is to go through all of that evidence to test that evidence rigorously um, and to get some answers. And so I am optimistic that we will get information that is helpful and as in addition we will get recommendations for the future um, again this is the first time the emergencies act has been invoked in its 30-year history over 30 years um, so i think we owe it to ourselves as a society to ask those questions get that information and see whether there are improvements um, and tweaks that need to be made because who knows in the future what kinds of emergencies might arise um, and what actions the government may
1: wish to take now obviously we don't know at this point what we're going to learn through this process but if if at the mm-hmm. end of all of this um you know the government has failed to to justify the necessity of of the invocation of the act that that we didn't mm-hmm. meet the threshold where does that leave us do we just shrug and hope the government's do better next time or what would be what would be the options at that point
3: well you know Canadians have the ability through the political process to make their voices heard. So, if, mm-hmm. if Canadians are paying attention and don't like what they're hearing from the government, um, I hope Canadians will either, you know, make decisions at the ballot box or speak up, call your MP, um, you know, tweet at your MP, ask. What's being done, I think that that democratic accountability is huge. In addition, there can be recommendations made for the future, whether it be amendments to the Emergencies Act, um, whether it be other changes around policing, around police oversight, around the relationship between um, different law enforcement bodies. There may be recommendations that come out of this process. Um, that can equip us as a country to deal fairly democratically um, with emergencies that arise in the future. So, uh, so, you know, as you heard from Commissioner Rouleau, they're a piece that is really forward-looking, um, and that's the, you know, again, the advocacy work of trying to tease those things out and figure out uh, how we can do even
1: better. Well, we'll see how it all plays out. Much more is mentioned, ccla.org. Laura again, thanks for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. Of course. Thanks for your time. All the best. Laura Berger, uh, staff lawyer and spokesperson with the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. They'll be intervening in this case. Uh, And so we'll see what the next uh, several weeks come up with here. (music) Dealing with the Canada Revenue Agency is not fun at the best of times. And, And for small businesses in particular, on top of everything else that you need to be worried about, As a small business owner, trying to navigate the Canada Revenue Agency uh, can be a real distraction and a real problem. Uh, Some new documents tabled in Parliament show just how much of a a mess, how much of a maze small business owners are having to navigate when dealing with the Canada Revenue Agency, especially when it comes to audits. Small and medium-sized businesses who are facing audits are now waiting longer, much longer, to see those audits completed. It is now taking the Canada Revenue Agency almost a year On average to conduct an audit of a small business that's obviously creating a lot of stress and uncertainty for business owners across the country now there was a pause you know the immediate um, days of the pandemic these audits uh, were put on pause which made sense Uh, so we're now back into a world where these audits are happening but it's taking longer and longer for the CRA to complete those audits but joining us to talk about why uh, the problem's so bad, what this means to small businesses that are having to go through this. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Kareem Pullman, uh, Senior VP of National Affairs of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Kareem, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me. As I understand, I mean, this was, was a problem that was getting worse even before the pandemic. But what's your sense of why it's so bad now?
0: Well, you know, it's probably got a lot to do with many of the issues everybody is facing. I imagine we probably have to ask CRA why it is, but my, I imagine it has a lot to do with shortage of labor. It's a backlog of audits, as you pointed out at the introduction, that uh, audits were sort of put on hold for a good year and a half, two years, and um, I think they also moved people from audit functions into other functions during the during COVID. So. It's getting people back into the audit function. It's getting through the backlog. It's probably labor shortages issues. Mm-hmm. But despite all that, we have seen in our own data that we've been collecting since for the last 10, 15 years on CRA that the average amount of time that a small business is dealing with an audit had been going up even before the pandemic. So our, we've been very concerned about this like lengthening amount of time that a business has to deal with a, an audit now.
1: I mean, one solution might just be to do fewer audits. Uh, that, that might uh, alleviate some of the pressure. But, I mean, you know, how common, how frequent are, are these audits?
0: Um, you know, according to our own data, when we ask business owners, uh, have you been audited in the last year, of course... It all depends how you define an audit. Right. Um, anybody gets contacted by the CRA, that's an audit to them, right? Because if CRA is calling you, then there's something wrong. Mm-hmm. But that's not always an audit, right? So it's when somebody actually either you know, meets with you through now virtual means or face-to-face that that can be uh, considered an audit. And it's probably around, in our own data, that 10 to 15% of small businesses that have probably experienced an audit in the last few years.
1: Yeah, okay, well, it's a significant number. And this is not a simple process, is it?
0: no it's definitely not a simple process again you know anybody who gets contacted by the cra your heartbeat starts to go up. you start to worry about oh no what did i do wrong because we have such a complex um tax system that you know there's inevitably somewhere along the way that maybe you got something wrong so it's a it's a very complicated process that usually involves having to produce certain materials um, on your own or from your accountant so yeah it can take a while
1: it can so you know, these documents showing that it's taking a year on average. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that you know, that's from start to finish. And I would imagine, you know, there's a lot of waiting in between. This isn't a year of daily interactions with, with the CRA. But, you know, for a, a process like this to play out over that period of time, what's mm-hmm. the impact on a small business? Oh, it's incredibly
0: stressful. Um, It's incredibly stressful. So it takes an emotional toll, for sure, because of the stress, but it also takes a financial toll because you don't know what you're going to eventually end up having to do at the end of an audit. You may have to produce materials that aren't necessarily easily accessible, so you have to pay an accountant or somebody else to get that for you. So it really can take a toll. Um, And if nothing is found at the end of the day, it's really frustrating on top of that, right? So it's... uh, it, 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 it is not an easy thing to go through, and so we have to make sure when that happens that people are very clear on what is involved and how they need to get through it.
1: So what's, what's the right response here? I mean, obviously, we're not going back to, to, you know, as it was early in the pandemic where audits stopped. I mean, obviously, that's the reality of, you know, the, uh, the CRA. There are going to be audits, but in terms mm-hmm. of at least trying to streamline the process or at least recognize the impact on businesses, what would be a reasonable, reasonable response?
0: Yeah, I mean I think there's something's gotta be done to think about, you know, how much time and effort is put into small business audits which may produce marginal <laughs> gains mm-hmm. at the end of the day, versus putting more of your effort into, you know, much larger audits that can produce a lot more revenue at the end of the day, right? So it's it's a tough one to sort of have to go through and I think there also has to be a look at whether or not um a small business owner has the ability to, uh, did they do something fraudulently? So if it's really just they you know, didn't fill out the right form or they didn't fill something out, rather than penalizing them that way, maybe it's just a matter of giving them a call and showing them how to do it correctly, rather than putting them through an audit and make sure that they continue to do it the correct way going forward. So there's other ways to correct the behaviors uh, than through an audit.
1: Right. And, and I mean, you know, audits are going to take time. I think everybody recognizes that a year seems kind of ridiculous, but what's, mm-hmm. what's a more reasonable timeline?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> I mean, if you talk to any small business owner, they'll tell you the the faster, the better, right? That's if right. it could be completed in the win a week or two, that would be ideal, right? Is that realistic? I don't know. Um, because as you mentioned, a lot of that time in a year is just waiting, sitting in a waiting time. You're not doing anything active, right? So it's, it's, Really hard to say, but obviously the faster the better. Everybody gets through the process quickly. Um, ideally, it'd be down within 30 days.
1: I mean, these are stressful times for small businesses. We can't overlook the broader context here, right?
0: No, we cannot. And that's something we continue to try to remind Siri about. Is that you know, and and to their credit, they have been pretty good at trying to respond through COVID. Mm-hmm. But this is one area that unfortunately has sort of ballooned, and we need to make sure that there's some. Um, thought put into what that process looks like for small business and find ways to minimize the, uh, the stress that's associated with it. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Uh, much more at CFIB.ca. Corinne, thanks so much Make some time for us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. Not a problem. Thank you for having me. All right. That's uh, Corinne Pullman, Senior VP of National Affairs of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Uh, so what they're hearing from their members is a lot of frustration, you know, just trying to navigate the process, but how long it's taking, how long you have that hanging over your head. And, yeah, when it comes to small businesses, I mean, it's bad enough for individual taxpayers. But there's a lot more complexity when it comes to small businesses. So, yes, it's a very demanding process. And, obviously, the worry that if, you know, they find something uh, that that doesn't seem right, it's just going to drag it out even further. There could be some some consequences. Look, obviously, there's an onus on everybody, you know, individual taxpayers, businesses, uh, to be responsible in your accounting. And to realize that, yes, you may be audited at some point, and if you have everything in order, then that should theoretically go smoothly. But it's an incredibly stressful process on top of everything else that small businesses are having to navigate right now. So I don't think anyone's saying, look, CRA should just never audit anybody. I think under the circumstances, if they're the ones facing staffing shortages, if the resource uh, problem is on their side, then maybe the response for now is to do fewer audits if that makes it easier for CRA to manage the burden right now. Uh, And until maybe they get their resources built up, then maybe that's how it should be. If the CRA is trying to do more audits with fewer staff and resources, then this is the result. That's not the fault of business owners. They're not the ones that are doing anything that's contributing to the length of the process here. This is kind of a CRA problem. So, yeah, for me, I think the the, the first step should be, uh, until you can address that, you need to scale back. And if doing fewer audits, if you're finding more problems, then maybe you could try to justify, you know, stepping up the number you're doing. But there's no way that something like that should take a year. Like, no way at all. That's just, that's completely unreasonable. Like she says, there's no magic number here. The sooner the better, yeah. But, you know, to say 50 days, 100 days... 87 days like you know there there is no arbitrary set magic number for how long it should take and sometimes it's going to depend on what's uncovered or what's missing or what needs to be double checked right um but yeah this this seems unfair thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast don't forget to subscribe rate and review for free at apple Podcasts, google play or wherever you find your podcast you can also find me on twitter at rob breakenridge you can email me rob at 770 chqr.com talk to you next time